everyone, and welcome to Talk with a Doc, the show where we bring common questions to medical experts for insight and information. I'm Sandra Brown, Regional Manager uh, for the Genetics Program for Providence Southern California. Joining me today is Amanda DeLeon. We are both board-certified licensed genetic counselors, and this is the first of a four-part series about our genetics and genomics programs at Providence Orange County including Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo, St. Joseph Hospital in Orange, and St. Jude Medical Center in Fullerton. Today, we want to discuss general genetics, myths, and barriers. So let's get started. Hello, Amanda. It's great to speak with you today on this incredibly important topic. Yeah, I'm so excited to, to get to talk to you. This is something that I am very passionate about, so can't wait to get started. Yeah, let's, I mean, let's just start off with an introduction. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role um, with Providence? Yeah, so I was born and raised here in SoCal, and most of my family is local as well. And when I say family, I actually mean family. So I have a total of 20 aunts and uncles. And so because of having such a huge family, I feel like it's also a huge part of my identity. And so when I think of family, I also think of the cooking and the recipes that came from all the women teaching uh, myself the food that, that we love to eat. And so when I think about that, I think about how I fell in love with the field of genetic counseling as well. Because when you think about it, what are genes but another type of family recipe, another story that connects family members together. So I love that as a genetic counselor at Providence, we have the science, you know, the top of scope work that we do that pushes new levels to how far we can personalize and modernize method uh, or medicine. And then we also have that empathy, that inquisitiveness to navigate the story that is cancer in a family. And so I think my positions within my team at Providence really speak to both components of genetic counseling. So I am currently the lead for the JEDI initiative to partner and connect with providers and programs that engage diverse populations and create awareness about genetic services through outreach. But I'm also the St. Jude coordinator of the pathology screening program. So great programs here at St. Jude. Yeah, and today we're gonna talk a lot about general genetics and myths and barriers. We're also gonna go over the JEDI project that you do lead. And we're going to talk about pathology screening program in another one of our episodes. I think it's episode three. Um, So we probably won't talk about the pathology screening program very much. But can you just start off? I know we're going to talk about it more in depth later. But can you start off by just letting us know what JEDI stands for? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. And so those are initials. And when we think of them, they can be spelled many different ways. So some people might say DEI. Some people might say DEJI. But in general, those letters stand for diversity, equity, justice, and inclusion. And so what we're aiming for here is just being inclusive, being aware of the patient population that we serve, the communities that we're working in, and trying to make sure our work is very thoughtful in engaging those communities. Yeah, I think it really relates to what you talked about, being a local SoCal large family person. I really noticed, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to um, have this podcast conversation with you, is that I've really noticed your com- compassion and connection, not only with our our families, our communities, but also with our patients and how that extends to their families and their communities. Uh, so I'm really grateful to have you here today. 
my main role as the regional uh, manager is to make sure that the programs we develop are inclusive and are um, create an increase in accessibility and also create an increase in fluency so that not only our physicians and our nurses and other care providers have more fluency in genetics, but that also our communities have more accessibility and understanding and fluency about genetics and how that can change and improve their, their, their access to personalized medicine, their access to understanding risk for disease. Um, and today we're, we're gonna focus a little bit on cancer, but a lot of genetic services are, go beyond cancer risks and the ability to understand and be more fluent and have genetic services available to you goes beyond just cancer risks. You said knowledge and getting that awareness. So I think the first step is, well, what is even genetic counseling? What is even, what is what right. you do to begin with? Yeah, so can you uh, describe just the basics of what is a genetic counselor and what does a genetic counselor do? Genetic counselors have this really unique skill set to help patients understand and adapt to the complex implications of hereditary conditions. So they're there to take something really complicated and just make it easy to grasp and know what to do with that information. And so they have the ability to interpret the risk of these conditions and what does it mean for them and for their family. So we ask a lot of questions during our appointments. We we're like, like to get down to the nitty gritty and try to learn as much as we can about them and their family. And then we then take that information we've learned and that we know from, from the science side and we then educate the patient and their providers about what we understand and what the genetic testing, the medical management and resources are, resources are that are available. So that leads to the third point that we um, take on as our role. So genetic counselors have the word counselor in the name because that is such a key role of ours. So we help our patients navigate and adapt to this condition. And then they feel informed about their choices because they know what they're getting into when they have our appointments. Um, but this is just a glimpse into what we do, but there are so many different areas that we found our skills useful for. Exactly, and I think many people probably don't know that genetic counselors are have master's degrees, so are masters trained to provide genetic medicine, um, to provide counseling, um, and to really provide clinical genetics uh, recommendations and to interpret uh, genetic test results. So when a patient has risks associated with their family history or maybe with a new diagnosis, that really points us to a suspicion that this could be inherited, that's when the genetic counselor uh, jumps in and supports that patient and their family and their physicians to really understand how genetics may be playing a role in um, this patient's care, as well as in their preventive strategies or risk reduction management, and how to communicate all this, not only to the patient so that they can understand, but also to their families so that their family members can understand. I, I really love being a genetic counselor, and I find that taking all this complex information and making it accessible and personal and useful to um, alleviate some of the really difficult challenges in life of having risk to develop disease and trying to prevent that risk, um, or at least identify risk early so that we can work on risk reduction. It's an amazing job. It's an amazing role. And, and I really I find my compassion to be at the level of, of all of our genetic counselors where we feel um, passionate and excited about the work that we do. Yeah, and I would say it's what we're trained to do. So some people ask, well, could someone else do it? 
this is what we are trained to do. We have these skills, we have right. that compassion, we have that expertise to be able to do something like this. So let's get started talking about genetics. Um, can you start, off, our, start us off with um, just a discussion, a, a general background of genetics and DNA? What is DNA? What are genes? And can you just start, it off, start us off with a little bit of the basic science? Within our bodies, we have trillions of cells and our cells need instructions to create us and to tell our body how to function. So DNA or deoxyribonucleic acid is the material that exists in every cell in your body. So think of it like an instruction manual or how I like to say a recipe book for your body. And genes are those instructions that explain to your body what it needs to do. And these genes get passed down from our parents. So we receive one copy of a gene from each parent, one from the egg and one from the sperm. And a genetic condition occurs when a gene has a difference or a change in its instruction that makes it not work, also called a genetic mutation. So think of instructions for making cookies, for example. And if the instruction for sugar said one cup of salt instead of one cup of sugar, so this changes that recipe completely. There are genetic tests here at Providence that use blood, saliva, or skin to identify if there are any genetic mutations in your body that cause that gene to not work. Not quite at that scale of one cup of sugar to one cup of salt, but there, there may be a little bit smaller changes, maybe changes that cause other differences, maybe an increased risk for cancer, increased risk for a cardiac condition. And so knowing if and what genetic mutation you have can help you and your healthcare team know if there are increased healthcare risks that need additional screening or care, or more even just personalizing your care. Sure, and most of the time when we talk about disease risk, we talk about maybe the general population risk of developing cancer, or the general population risk of developing diabetes, or um, dementia, or uh, you know cardiovascular disease. We talk about things in this kind of um, broad way as saying things, this is a general population risk. But in genetics, what we do is we read those instructions, right? We read the instructions and we look for very small changes that sometimes are called mutations and sometimes are just human variations that may modify uh, the way that a gene is actually working. And so when we have these mutations or variations, we know that you, know, mean, you may no longer have the same general population risk um, for this particular body or in this particular family for those members of the family that have also inherited the same mutation. So in that way, we're able to modify our understanding, like what is the risk and how old would um, we expect you to start developing risk and when we can really target um, what kind of risks does this person have and when would we expect them to start having that risk? A lot of times it's earlier ages. So then we're able to meet that risk in a very personalized way by modifying when a patient starts having screening or what kind of risk reduction we would recommend to help them to avoid that risk. But it's almost like taking something that is invisible, right? And then reading those tiny little instructions of your DNA and then making it visible, making it much more clear and showing a person what to do about it. And we talked a little bit about the different areas of genetics, uh, but can you describe a little bit more about the breadth of uh, where we currently um, see genetics playing an important role in healthcare? Genetics has the potential to impact all areas of healthcare from diagnosis, treatment, prediction, and prevention. So ranging from simple diseases to more complex diseases. 
And so there are patients that see genetic counselors as they're thinking about pregnancy planning or patients trying to understand what their later decades in life might look like with conditions such as Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. Um, at Providence Orange County, we specialize in adult cancer and cardiac genetic conditions. And these are both huge fields in genetics with the cardiac, cardiac space especially growing so much in the recent years um, as we learn more and more about hereditary components to cardiac conditions. And since we do specialize especially in cancer, I wanted to delve a little bit more into what that means. There's a lot more to the role of a genetic counselor besides ordering just the genetic test. So when we ask patients all those questions about their family member's history of cancer, we use that information to do a risk assessment to determine a patient's risk for certain cancers and how that might impact their screening or care going forward. Um, so only about 15% of our patients that are tested are found to have a genetic mutation associated with increased cancer risk and changes in cancer screening based on their cancer risk. That means then that 85% of patients that get referred to us because they have family members with cancer or they, they themselves have cancer, or maybe they're adopted and have limited information about their family. So these individuals are still going to benefit from a cancer risk assessment that genetic counselors perform in addition to that comprehensive genetic test that is offered to our patients. And so genetic test results are just one part of the thorough cancer risk assessment that we do here as genetic counselors. I think that's important to know that the genetic test itself is just a tool. It's just one of the tools that we use to make sure that we understand what does the patient's personal and family history mean. So uh, perhaps a person is diagnosed with cancer at an early stage. Why did that happen? So we can start to delve into why did that happen by doing genetic testing, um, but we don't always find an answer. And so in those cases, we might ask a patient to return in a couple of years so that we can continue our investigation. I mean, after all, it was only a couple of years ago that we were, you know, typically um, only analyzing about maybe five genes in a patient or 10 genes in a patient. Now we routinely analyze about 100 genes in a patient um, in order to understand what might have caused their cancer. Um, then we can also see family histories, that family history itself um, if a genetic test result is negative, family history itself creates some risk. So if your mom or dad or brother or sister had cancer, then we know that that still increases your likelihood of developing cancer. But if your genetic test result is negative, that gives us more information about how to really estimate what your risks are. Um, and it also helps us to understand um, maybe we need to recommend that your sibling uh, or your parent or whoever had cancer does the testing so that we can understand that maybe you didn't inherit the mutation, um, but there actually is a mutation in your family so that we can help identify the members of the family who did inherit the mutation and then let the members of the family who did not inherit the mutation understand that that's not a risk that they've inherited, um, but that does exist in their family. They just didn't inherit it. I think. Um, you know, one of the things we talk about as far as, you know, the role of the genetic counselor and not just doing genetic testing, really providing this genetic risk assessment that goes not only to the individual, but to their family and makes recommendations for them and their family is an essential part of delivering personalized medicine. It really is. And then being able, um, another role that we often do in the, in the cancer space is attending all the case conferences. So every time a case is discussed uh, through the multidisciplinary team, 
we're there to make sure that the physicians and the nurses and other individuals in the patient's care team understand what their personal and family history, what their genetic test results really mean to that patient for their ongoing management. Um, and we also do a lot of education um, within our um, within our health system um, to make sure that everyone who is touching a patient during their lifetime has access to um, an education and additional fluency and understanding about genetics and how genetics is moving forward. Uh, because as you and I both know, the pace of change in genetics and the pace of new information um, is amazing. And we always are having to keep up with all the new information. And part of our job is to make sure that all the healthcare team, um, all the physicians and the people involved in patient care have their information updated as well, help them keep up. Uh, because it's no longer about a, a handful of genes that we're analyzing. Um, we're talking about many times that now. Yeah, no, and you, you bring up a good point that I think patients will mention to me, they'll be surprised hearing how comprehensive that risk assessment is or how many genes we're looking at or the fact that we're telling them, hey, come back in a few years. This isn't just a one-time deal. So patients are hearing things and then they get surprised when they come in and, and learn some new information. Right. When you talk to patients too, um, and, and also physicians, there's oftentimes myths that old information that that maybe was always a misunderstanding um, or old information that has never been updated or clarified kind of still remains. And so can you just kind of go over some of the more common uh, myths that you might hear or misunderstandings that you might hear from your patients or from providers? Yeah, and I would even go so far, not just patients, providers, but there's some popular TV shows that have spurred <laughs> right. those on as well. So I, two um, general ones that I think are great to address. So one thing that patients might say is, hey, I think it's skipping generation. So maybe my grandfather got it and now I'll get it, but my mom's generation is okay. So in terms of that, that uh, myth or that the question that I've heard, the reality is that genes or more specifically the genetic mutations that lead to these hereditary cancer conditions and higher risk for cancers do not skip generations. Instead, what some families may see is that even when a relative is found to have a gen genetic mutation or a hereditary cancer condition, it doesn't mean 100% chance for cancer for most conditions. It just means that chance is higher. So maybe instead for breast cancer, instead of it being about 10%, maybe it now goes up to 40%. So that means there's a still 60% chance that they won't get cancer. And so that can look in some families like it's skipping generations because some of those relatives are not getting that cancer because of that risk not being 100%. So I think that's one thing. And then another one that I always like to stress because it helps patients uh, feel more comfortable and you know consider genetic testing more is that um, some patients might mention, hey, insurance doesn't cover most genetic testing or it must be really expensive to do this test. Well, most insurances do cover genetic testing when medically indicated due to a personal or family history of cancer. And then there's also options via laboratories that we use to provide affordable financial options with typical out-of-pocket cost for genetic testing to not exceed $250, at least for the, the test we order, um, if insurance does not cover the cost of genetic testing. So those are two big ones I, I'd want to bring up. Yeah, I think that's really important, especially when you talk about the price of genetic testing because um, and the coverage, right? Because, you know, not too long ago, maybe 10 years ago or five years ago, in some cases, 
um, the, the cost was very expensive and the um, standards or the criteria to have coverage, uh, insurance coverage for genetic testing was much more limited. Um, but now, and, and, you know, and even still today, I sometimes hear a physician um, telling their patient, discouraging them, oh, you don't want to do that. It's so expensive. It's like thousands of dollars, you know, and so sometimes it's that the physicians just don't keep up with um, what's new about genetics. And one of the big things that's new about genetics is that um, the the criteria and the coverage and patients who meet criteria um, to do, to have genetic counseling and to do genetic testing has become very broad. So it really just takes a little bit of family history, a little bit of personal history, um, not always personal history, sometimes just family history to meet an insurance criteria for us to consider doing your testing. But if you want to do genetic testing and you want to have genetic counseling, you don't necessarily have to have um, a specific criteria met. You can always choose to have genetic testing and pay for it um, out of pocket if your insurance doesn't cover it. And typically we can get those costs down with patient financial assistance um, down below $250, but $250 is the maximum. So it's much more affordable, much more affordable than it used to be. And, and I think a lot of times people are stuck with the old information and, and we'll talk about some of the technology later, but I think it's really that people don't understand that A, the evidence about the importance of doing genetic testing has gotten to be so important that there's so much more insurance coverage for so many different types of personal and family histories and that the technology has allowed us to um, be much um you know, much less expensive in being able to run genetic tests um, by the laboratories that specialize in genetic testing. And so both of those myths are really important to um, get clear so that patients feel um, or any individual in our community feels like there is access. Yeah, and I know some some patients would say, well, I don't want to do your test, and I've heard that there's cheaper options out there, so it's good for to bring that knowledge back to us and say, hey, no, actually, here are those options, and here, here they are, in some cases, affordable even. Right, and it's important to let us choose, I think it's important to let a genetics professional identify what's the best test to run, and what's the best laboratory, and, you know, what kind of genes, and which genes do we want to make sure to be analyzing. A lot of times I've had um, different patients come in and said, well, I, I didn't want to pay thousands of dollars for genetic testing, so I did my own direct-to-consumer testing online. And that, that direct-to-consumer testing online told me that I didn't have any additional risk of developing cancer or my, my cancer risk was just basic general population risk. And then when I did their genetic testing, they actually did have a um, a genetic mutation that did increase, uh, in, that was inherited and did increase the, them, their and their family members' risk of developing cancer. And they thought, well, why didn't my direct-to-consumer test give me the right information? And so I think there's a lot of myths and misunderstandings about what direct-to-consumer testing really is and how accurate is it, and also that it's not considered clinically-based testing. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. I, I think they're they're a great tool, um, you know, that patients have looked into. So there are resources for patients. Maybe they're looking to understand their ancestry a bit more, or they they like those health features that are on there that mention a couple a couple different topics. Um, they're easily accessible. You can sometimes even get them at the local um, local stores, pick them up. Um, I know a lot of patients consider them, especially around the holidays, as gifts. 
um, that's another topic, but I, I would <laughs> right. say that there's a lot of different reasons that patients might look into them, and then also that they're relatively affordable. But you brought up a good point. These are not clinical tests, and they do not have that same strict rules that the genetic laboratories we use have. Um, and then in addition, the patients uh, sometimes can then take the, that data from those tests, and it's what we call like raw data, and then upload them to a third-party database to interpret the results. But all that data getting into that third party has been, you know, not quite the most accurate. So there's even been research that's shown that 40% of the variants found in that raw data was falsely positive. So causing that stress and that anxiety that comes with saying, we found something very concerning, and then you go to a genetic counselor to get that checked because that's a good decision to make, um, and then find out that it wasn't actually accurate that right. we actually wouldn't recommend doing anything different based on what they are found because we didn't find that same thing with our clinical grade test. And so the big takeaway from me here is that if anyone has any questions about previous genetic testing they have done, such as through these labs or the directors consumer labs, speaking to a genetic counselor can be really helpful. So we can often review the testing that someone has done to determine if additional testing is needed before making those big healthcare decisions based on what was found. Sure, there's been a couple of publications in the last couple of years about the inaccuracies of those um, test results from those direct consumer tests. And if you're going to pay a hundred or a couple hundred dollars for those, I've never done one because I know they're inaccurate. And so I'm just not interested in um, whatever fun things um, they have. <laughs> I just haven't really been intrigued by. Um, but if someone does do one of those tests and they do have a question, um, it's important to remember that they're not considered clinically accurate and um, you would need to come in and talk to a genetic counselor about actually pursuing um, clinically valid genetic testing. And if you're going to spend $100 or $200 on a direct-to-consumer test, to realize that's about the same price you would pay if your insurance really didn't cover um, uh, the testing and you had to pay out of pocket, you might pay something similar. Um, so this, it's not really um, a financial it's not really a good financial decision if that's what you're basing it on. You know, I think another of the um, misunderstandings that patients have is around genetic discrimination. And I think that's a, it's a valid concern um, to wonder if I have genetic testing and I identify that I have a predisposition to develop a disease, you know, what does that mean to me? How can I be discriminated against? And so can you talk about um, the laws and um, ethics around genetic testing and about the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination -Discrim Act that was passed federally um, around, I can, now I can't remember what year that was. Do you remember what year? Yeah, so, so it's called the, the GINA or the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act of 2008. Um, and so I think this is a great law as well. So it's it's a federal law that protects people from discrimination based on their genetic information in both health insurance and employment. And defining genetic information is defined by the law to include family medical history and um, information regarding individuals and family members' genetic tests. So there are some limitations to this coverage, for example, for the U.S. military, um, and in addition, Gina's health insurance protections do not cover long-term insurance, life insurance, or disability insurance, though some states have laws that offer those additional protections against genetic discrimination. 
Um, I think this is an important point to bring up with patients so that they can make an informed decision regarding genetic testing, knowing what protections are in place and what aren't in place or things that they have to consider. Yeah, I think it is important for people to realize um, the laws that are in place to protect them and the limitations of those laws as well. You know, when you're talking about that law, I forgot it was 2008, so thanks for letting me know. Um, but there was also a law a few years after that in 2013 that really changed how, um, you know, genetics um, laboratories and um, the ability to um, use different genes, um, whether they were patentable or not patentable. And so at the time, the BRCA1 and 2 genes were patented. And that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court decided in 2013 that you could not patent a gene. And it makes sense because you can't patent nature and genes are part of our nature. And so can you talk a little bit about why that was so important that we were able to successfully kind of release our genes from specific ownership? Yeah, and you were right. This is this was such a huge big deal in the science world when it happened. And I would say this whole process started much earlier, um, though, when gene discovery was happening in the cancer space. So I'm going to actually go back to the 1990s. Um, so a lot of research was going on to understand the genetic foundations of breast cancer. So in 1990, the University of California, Berkeley, announced that they had located a gene that provided clues of connection between certain genetic mutations and breast cancer, and thus BRCA1 or BRCA1 was discovered. And then the following year at the University of Utah, a group of researchers with some financial backing came together and created a small um, biotech company called Myriad, which is now quite, quite well known today in the cancer genetic testing space. And so Myriad sequenced BRCA1 in 1994, which means they identified the nucleotide bases or the ingredients, if we're going back to my recipe um, analogy, ingredients in DNA that together comprise the BRCA1 gene. Uh, they then obtained uh, patents covering the sequence gene, the mutations that were discovered, and then all the tests and methods that uh, were used to identify mutations of that gene. And then for the next four years, they raced to discover the next famous gene, or to sequence the next one, which was BRCA2, um, eventually filing for patents for, for that as well. And so these were such important discoveries that were done. There's no doubt about that. But then they fought tooth and nail to ensure they benefited from this knowledge um, and patent and would send cease and desist letters to researchers and others wanting to engage in BRCA1 and 2 testing and research. So was there, there was definitely some tense relationships with other healthcare organizations, physicians, patient advocate groups, and even individuals that were wanting this testing and wanting to learn more about their health. Um, so eventually that lawsuit came about that was filed against Myriad challenging these patents. And then in 2013, the Supreme Court issued a decision that genes, like you said, cannot be patented as they're products of nature and cannot be treated as inventions just because they sequenced them. So the validation of these patents allowed for other laboratories to offer testing for these genes. And this was timed so well with huge jumps in technology that was occurring at the same time that allowed genetic testing laboratories to sequence an entire genome so much quicker compared to how long it took for that first human genome project. And so both the Supreme Court decision and then these technology jumps in the genetics world Led, led to testing becoming so much more accessible and then affordable for patients. 
Yeah, I think it's really important. Before the decision in 2013, when a patient came in and had a certain personal or family history that, uh, you know, made them um, want to do or choose to do genetic testing for their clinical wellness, um, we would have to order multiple genes from multiple different laboratories in order for the patient to have a single panel. And maybe they would only test, maybe we would only test three or four or five genes, but all of those would have to be um, tested and sample collected and insurance approved one by one by one. And only, um, and each gene, as these genes were being discovered, they could be potentially patented and then locked in and not researched only by one laboratory. And so, although it's important for um, discovery to be supported financially, it's also important to recognize that patent laws do not cover nature. And genes being part of our nature are something that everybody um, should have access to. And that has really allowed us to order large panels with large genes, much more access, much more research, and much more advancement in our ability to provide um, large amounts of um, genetics uh, testing, large genes, large numbers of genes, and um, inexpensive um, single um, sample collection uh, to run our laboratory tests. I'm so grateful for how far we've come just in, in that short time period as well. It's It's been amazing. So when we talk about testing, you were talking about um, technology, you were talking about prices. Now that we know at this time period um, that the barriers for providing genetic testing are being broken down, um, more people are meeting criteria more genes are being available for testing and the technology is allowing us to um, analyzing multiple genes at once. And so when you think about what were those barriers and how they have changed, you know, what other kind of barriers um, have we been working on at Providence to make sure that genetic testing is truly available to everyone? Yeah, um, and then, so I would say there's there's a lot of different barriers that can exist, and we're talking about genetics here, and it feels so uh, so common or so well known. But I think it's actually a, a big barrier for a lot of people is just the knowledge that genetic testing and counseling exist and can benefit anyone. So the more patients and providers that know that genetic services exist and oftentimes are covered by insurance or that there's affordable financial options, the more people that can then make an informed decision of pursuing genetic testing. So here at Providence, we aim to address this specific barrier by creating access to our department and services in as many avenues as possible. We also aim to educate and create awareness about our services any chance we get. So we look to connect with providers in our communities. We look to connect with providers at our own hospital systems and just let them know what are the latest updates? What are we learning now at this time? What should uh, what patients would benefit the most from this? Um, and so there's a lot that we're doing, and Danielle and Dylan, like I said, will go over this, these programs and this work in even more detail, but that's just one barrier. In terms of other barriers that we consider, I think one would also be um, maybe they know that the services exist, but they're like, well, I don't qualify. I don't think I could get this test. I really want it, but I'm looking at my family, and I don't know much about them. It can be a privilege to know what health history your family has had. So some individuals may be adopted might be estranged, or even if they do know their family, they might not have easy communication with them because they live in another country or passed away in a region or time period that had different health care from our own. 
And so they might not know why, for example, all their aunts passed away at such young ages, for example. And so that's another barrier that, that's important to consider. Um, and then one other barrier that I think is something to consider is beliefs and mistrust that can exist surrounding not only genetic services, but also cancer. So in some cultures, cancer may carry a significant amount of stigma or myths or taboos, and cancer might be seen as a punishment um, or a curse or even a mark or trial on that person or family. So it's important as providers that we consider the diversity of our patient population and the needs and values that bring with that they bring with them when making decisions about their healthcare. Same for genetic testing as well. So same, some may consider this research with no clinical benefit that will directly impact them. They're doing it for the provider because they told them, but why would I need it for me? And so with the connotation of research then comes mistrust in some communities who have been harmed or left out of important research in the medical community. So communicating with patients and the providers that see them is so that they're well informed about the impact of genetic testing is so important because you know the more knowledge the more accurate knowledge that they get knowing how accessible it is is so important because then then we can help them make those informed decisions. I know I think these are really important areas of barriers that sometimes we don't really consider. Um, not knowing your family history um, it shouldn't be a barrier because it's something that we can take into consideration when we advise a patient regarding um, any genetic testing that they would like to do. Um, and so, you know, it, it is important that um, all of the barriers that we can address or that we can identify, that we also consider them when we're trying to reduce barriers and improve access to genetics. One, you know, some of the things that you um, touched on a little bit that we'll talk in depth in our future um, podcasts is our care program where everyone undergoing a mammogram um, will have a chatbot identify them um, and and basically interrogate them, ask them questions about their personal and family history so that we can identify them and advise them through their chatbot that they're um, completing through their mammogram. But if the patient doesn't go for a mammogram or if the patient feels um, intimidated by interacting with a chatbot, then we have missed that patient and, and we've identified there's a barrier there. Um, we also have opened up our walk-in clinic so that we have same-day services. Patients that are identified through um, their mammography um, questionnaire can just arrive at the genetics department and just have genetic testing right then and there without an appointment. In one way, that's really um, removing a barrier because it allows the patient appointmentless um, access to genetics. Um, but in another way, a patient may feel um, like some of these mistrust issues may come up for them and they may not pursue this and we may not have an opportunity to really discuss um, what the benefits are and to um, build that relationship and build that trusting relationship with a, with a patient who may see that the walk-in clinic is not an option for them because it does not help them to remove the barrier of some of their perceived beliefs and mistrust. Um, and then we also have the pathology screening program. Um, in that program, we're looking at all new cancer diagnoses and making sure that all of those patients are that are properly identified by us, that they're being recommended for genetics. In that case, I think we are really trying hard to make sure that every patient um, who has a pathology, a tissue pathology in our pathology department, um, due to a biopsy or a surgery from their cancer, 
we're trying to make sure that it's equitable, that it's every person is having that pathology reviewed, and then we're advising that patient and their physician. Um, but, but again, in each case, when we are working to remove barriers, we also are trying to stay um, uh, open um, to the idea that more barriers exist, and we need to make sure that we are hearing from our community um, about what barriers they still perceive um, when we are trying to deliver uh, healthcare genetic services widely across all of our members of our community. So, you know, as we're working on reducing barriers, why do you think it's important um, that our underserved patients are, you know, have this access and receive genetic uh, services? Yeah, and, and I, I will start just generally at first and saying why all our patient populations benefit from genetic testing. So there's so many benefits to understanding a little bit more about what I, I think what makes you who you are. So in the cancer genetics space, this information can inform patients about their cancer risks and even more importantly, help the patient and providers make informed decisions about appropriate screening plans such as frequency of colonoscopies or type of breast screening. And then you add another layer by discussing, like you said, the underserved population. So these are patients that oftentimes are not being seen for genetic testing or counseling until a diagnosis of cancer, and oftentimes later stage diagnosis due to barriers of access, knowledge by patients, and providers at the smaller community clinics they might be going to, and then of course cost concerns. And so knowing earlier can help patients and providers target preventative screening and then personalizing to what the patient needs. Um, but even for our patients that are finding out right now that they have a hereditary cancer condition, and they have a current current diagnosis of cancer, no one can help providers know treatment decisions and then how to manage them after the diagnosis. And then for their family members, they can then know about this hereditary condition and can get genetic testing to determine if they also have the same hereditary condition. So I think there's so many layers to it, and it's so important regardless of the patient to know about this and to get testing just because of that long-term impact. And I know we only have a few more minutes left, and I want to make sure that we get enough time to talk about your um, leadership and your leadership in developing a JEDI program for us in uh, Providence, Southern California, as well as the leader for all of Providence as a system to support the development um, within genetics of a JEDI program. And I know there are different elements of this, and I'd like you to go over, you know, how how does diversity impact research? How does diversity impact our data? Um, how does it impact our ability to accurately interpret genetic test results? And really, what does it mean for our communities? Diversity takes into account race, ethnicity, gender, age, disability, location, socioeconomic status, religion, and so much more. And without this wealth and broad data collection, we're not able to generalize study results or develop effective personalized medical advance advancements. And so when we're talking about the genetic space, for example, in um, the types of results that we get, one of those results is called a variant of unknown significance. And that's just saying that we don't know too much about that variant. And so we can see this a little bit more often in people that do not have a European background just because we don't have quite as much data in this space. And so it's important to think about that when we're wanting to, to, to get more data and to get more information because then that can give us 
more knowledge about what are these variants that we're seeing and what does that impact and what does that mean for the individual in terms of health risk. Um, and I see, I see we're doing that here at Providence as well. So we're trying to create that access. We're trying to reduce those barriers. Um, and then that just allows us to better understand our specific community as well, the OC, Orange County community, and get a better glimpse of who are these patients that we're truly serving. I think it's important when you're talking about those variants of unknown significance. Uh, most people don't realize that the uh, reference genome, the reference genome is the genome that is used by laboratories to say, um, what do we expect when we read the recipe of each gene? What do we expect as the baseline? What is our reference? And when that reference genome was built, it was multiple individuals, but they tended to be of European background, which is kind of, you know, average for what happens in research is oftentimes the primary um, individuals that are participating in research tend to have European backgrounds. And so what happened with the reference genome is that it was based on um, individuals uh, with a European background. And so when we test, um, genetically test individuals of non-European ethnic backgrounds, then we will get a lot more variants of unknown significance because the reference genome really is not applicable to those different um, ethnicities and backgrounds. And right now, one of the things that is kind of a global effort is to make the reference genome deeper so that all of the recipes, you know, basically that are coming from all different ethnicities are included in that reference genome so that we can actually be better at interpreting the genetic test results and have fewer variants of unknown significance. So one of the things that patient might experience is, and basically any patient of any um, ethnic um, background can experience getting a variant of unknown significance. Although patients that are of non-European descent will tend to have more of them. Um, and so what happens over time is that we continue to um, investigate those variants. Um, the laboratories and, and we continue to um, try to get those variants updated so that we can continue to reach out to our patients. It could be one year, it could be five years or more, and we can continue to reach out to them and say, you still have a variant that we don't understand, or your variant has been what we call reclassified. And it could be reclassified as just a plain old benign human variation, or it could actually be reclassified as meaningful to your disease risks and management. And so I think this is a really, really important area that um, genetics is, um, you know, worldwide trying to um, address, but we're just not there yet. Um, and then I know you talked about um, what does JEDI mean. Um, and then is there anything else that you wanted to, to really say about it? Like, what, what are you doing right now to help further um, our JEDI program so that it becomes much more a part of our, um, the way we could consider the service uh, delivery for genetics to every individual. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a that's a good point. So, so at Providence, we've we've been putting programs into place to create accessibility to our genetic services for for all patients. And so, as the JEDI lead, um, we want to expand on this really great work that we've been doing by engaging the OC communities around us that may not even make it to our hospital. So we do a really good job of picking up patients seen by us at our hospitals, but let's also engage our local community partners and providers who might not know as much about genetic services and let's inform them. 
So we've been doing that, we've been engaging them, and they've just responded really well, just getting the opportunity to learn more about this new information or this complex information that they don't quite know how to address. So I've, I've been seeing some really great excitement on that end. And then we also see that same excitement with um, undergraduate and graduate students interested in this research and work, and they've been reaching out to us as well and asking, hey, I really want to get a part of this. I'm, I'm growing up in this community. Is there any way that I can also do this too? And so we've been working with them and supporting them so they, they get to be a part of this work as well if they're interested. And that's been really excited, exciting because we see that same passion that, that we're bringing as well. Well, Amanda, I really appreciate your leadership in our justice, equity, inclusion, and diversity program. It's vital, I think, to making sure that our communities, um, every individual in our communities and all of our different um, individuals within communities feel like uh, we really care about them. Um, did you have any uh, last things that you wanted to say about um, your role and your um, passion for genetics? Uh, I would I would only just say that this is just the beginning. There's so much more that we're doing locally, nationally, regionally that it's it's we're just going to continue to grow. I can't wait to see what we do 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Um, one thing I, I think I people have heard about or if they haven't, I'm excited about nationally is there's a great program called All of Us that's just looking to get the most diverse health database in history. So that's that's on the large scale. We're doing something. We're doing a lot of stuff similarly locally, but just think about it. The fact that we're getting this diverse health database is going to help with that individualized healthcare based on the patients. That includes their environment, where they live, the lifestyle, what they do, and then the family history and genetic makeup. And so, putting that all together is personalized healthcare, and that's that's our goal at the end of the day. Yeah, it is. Um, I, and I really appreciate talking to you about it today. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you so much for joining us today on Talk with the Doc. We look forward to continuing the important conversations on health and wellness with more experts from Providence in future episodes. Please listen to the rest of our um, genetics um, episodes in this series. Please make sure to listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission, programs and services, go to providence.org. And please remember the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. And thanks for listening. Remember, at Providence, we see the life in you.